Really good to have you back with us. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the School Leadership Podcast, brought to you, as always, by NAHT and NAHT Edge. New ideas, thought-leading opinions and the latest ways of working. This is the School Leadership Podcast. What we'll discuss and what you'll hear in this month's episode is a difficult but vitally important topic childhood bereavement. It really is shocking to learn that around 1 in 29 children will be bereaved of a parent or sibling during their time at school and of course many more will experience bereavement of other family members or friends. But if you're like most of the teachers and school leaders you've probably actually received very little if any training on this very sensitive topic. Our guest in the podcast is Emma Muirhead from the charity Winston's Wish. The Edge director, James Bowen, had some time with Emma to find out what schools and school leaders can do to best support pupils who are dealing with bereavement and death, whether there are any traps or pitfalls to avoid. And they also discussed how a whole school policy on bereavement might be something that schools want to think about. The first thing that Emma did was explain how Winston's Wish works to support schools. We're a children's bereavement support charity. Uh, We've been around for a little over 25 years. Um, We operate nationally in terms of we have a national helpline, which is a free phone helpline. And that's for families to use, for individuals to use, uh, professionals, schools, anybody. So that's the route to all things Winston's Wish. we come from a place where we believe that uh, in an ideal world, and we know we appreciate it's not an ideal world, but we would like to strive for every bereaved child being able to access bereavement support as and when they need it. And that can be very individual uh, you know, in terms of timings. So we offer uh, family support, individual support. Uh, we run groups with children. Uh, we do some residential groups. We support schools. Um, we have drop-ins. Uh, we run uh, things that a little bit more community-based in terms of uh, we're starting up a walk and talk. We have after-school groups, which are very casual, just where groups of children can come with their adults. They can add, you know, tea and coffee for the adults and Lego and games uh, for the children, because sometimes isolation can be a real issue for people. So we sort of try and hit bereavement on every level uh, where possible. We also provide training. Uh, we've just redone our training schedule, and we do a three-day training package. Uh, and on top of that in a new role that we're piloting um, of having educational liaison workers, we offer a limited amount of free training uh, within schools. So when I say a limited amount, for example, that's my role in the team, and I would go into school for about an hour, hour and a half, and I can train as many people as can be gathered together um, and give them a real whistle-stop training of how to work alongside and be with uh, bereaved children to kind of allay people's anxieties. I guess pretty much every school leader in the country will probably have to deal at some point with a child in their school who is going through bereavement it's it's pretty common sadly isn't it um but i think about this very few school leaders have specific training around that you know that's not part of the package so what advice could you give to school leaders who find themselves in that situation when they do have a child who's going through bereavement what what can they be doing to help that child? Okay, well, I think you're right because I mean, the statistics show that if, if, you know, one in 29 children will be bereaved of a parent or sibling during their school career. 
So that's just for the parent or sibling, so that's underinflated. So in terms of bereavement, let's not forget the grannies, the grandpas, the uncles, you know, the foster carers and such like. And as you say, people are often feeling unprepared to deal with that. It, it doesn't, um, you know, sometimes a death can be expected um, if somebody's been terminally ill, for example. Sometimes it, someone can walk in, you know, and, and, and say, here are my children this morning. The dad died last night, I don't know what to do with them, please take them, and it can be a big shock. So the most basic and um, easy bit of advice to people is don't panic. That's, that's the first thing that actually happens in reality. Everybody thinks, my goodness, what do I say? Um, the best thing is just to be prepared to say something rather than nothing. Um, so say to the children, you know, engage in their situation. I'm, I'm really sad. Gosh, this has happened. I'm really sad to hear... Uh, mum has died or dad has died, whoever it is. Um, sometimes um, in our society we say, oh, I'm sorry to hear someone's died. For children that doesn't work so well because children's brains sort of go, sorry? Well, you didn't do it, you know. <laughs> you didn't do that. So I think the first thing is, is relax. That is the advice. It sounds a bit banal, but it's really, really true. Relax, be natural, be normal. Engage as much with the family as you're able to. And some families are, you know, easier to engage with than others in, in schools um, but but if you can have as much communication and engagement as possible and sort of have that as your starting block um, you know you may experience children who have had a bereavement the night before or you know for example if you're in a senior in a senior school setting for example that child may have been bereaved age four but at age 14 you know is having difficulties with it turning up tables having difficult behaviors possibly um, so it's just a bit of understanding um, that, you know, children revisit their bereavement at any, you know, many different times. Um, and sometimes there's a common um, conception that, you know, if a child's bereaved at a primary school age, for example, then perhaps they'll be okay and be sorted and they'll pop out nicely at their own. By the time they get to a senior school setting, they'll be fine. So it's having a bit more understanding. And there must that. be a challenge for schools, as you say, if a child suffered a bereavement age five or six, mm -hmm. and you know the first contact you have with them is in year seven, Absolutely. I suppose there's A, an issue in terms of are you even aware of yeah. what happened? Uh, and then B, remembering that this can be a long-term issue, that it, the, the, the effects perhaps will only be felt at a far later stage. Sure. Must be a challenge Absolutely. for schools to be able to you know deal with that when it's happened a number of years before I assume I think so and I think there's sort of a common you know a common thing that happens that I see it happens when I go into schools is you have perhaps a section of people who may be open to the idea that so take for example a child with really difficult behaviours you know it's hard to handle it's causing everybody a load of stress in school um, as, as in any organisation you get different approaches to that don't you uh, and sometimes um, the root of that child's behaviour could be a bereavement you know, from when they're, say, six. Let's call them six and they're 14 now. You know, that could that could be the root of that. Sometimes it's hard for people to see beyond uh, those behaviours and without the training, as you say, without that preparation, without the training. Pe many people may be unaware that, um, you know, bereavement is a long-lasting thing. It, there's no magic wand. Grief itself doesn't sort of change in size through people's lives. The grief, if you imagine the grief to be like a ball and the ball remains the same size, that person will carry that grief through their whole lives. The idea being their lives will grow around it, you know, so you'll grow around your grief, as it were, and so other things will come into life. But it might not be so suffocating. So to start with, that person might be completely overwrought with all of, all of that grief and such like. But as they get older, 
you know, that will still be there. And something like becoming 15 years old and having your first ever boyfriend, girlfriend and falling in love or something and then think, oh, do you know what, my mum and my dad, they're never going to see me, you know, get married or have children or pass my driving test or finish my GCSEs. You know, those sorts of things kick in at that point. And you said earlier about, you know, the need or the importance of talking about it, you know. Mm. Is, is there that fear that sometimes people are really worried about what if I say the wrong thing you know so I'd almost rather avoid the issue than run the risk of saying the wrong thing and making things worse but your advice seems to be the chances are you won't say the wrong thing you know that actually just just start talking about it you know is that is that the advice you'd be giving absolutely you know be be natural and say something the worst things already happened usually (coughs) or is happening and actually you're not going to really make that any worse that child is carrying difficult feelings and emotions already I went into a secondary school um, after the summer holidays and a girl there said to me gosh Emma you know um, my my mum died well obviously I knew that because I was there you know but nobody said anything to me her mum had died in the summer holidays she'd come back nobody said anything now people at school I know were very concerned about her but nobody had said anything to her and she obviously won't swear for the purposes of (laughs) of what we're doing but you know she sort of said it wasn't my cat it was my mum and no one said anything now she would have really appreciated just you know having um, someone acknowledge that it's a really enormous thing in her life you know that her mum had died on the other side, school were trying to be kind and not upset her any more than... But she was already upset, you see, so, yeah. And from your experience, do do children respond in similar ways to grief? Or is every single child completely unique? Are there similarities that you tend to find or not? Yeah, yeah. well, as with anything, you know, all children are very individual um, and they come from their very different backgrounds, family cultures, culture cultures, you know, um, and have very different sort of ways they relate to people anyway, perhaps before they've had a bereavement. But there are some real common things we come across um, and some real common reactions to being bereaved and impacts of being bereaved. So, for example, within school you might see uh, raised anxiety. You might have children who before were quite confident and now are kind of clinging to people's legs and not wanting to go in. Um, or, you know, conversely, you may have anxious children who are even more <laughs> sort of anxious than they were in the first place. Um, you have lots of children who have maybe a tummy ache or a headache or kind of physical ailments can be uh, an impact, you know, something that impacts as a consequence of bereavement. Kids carry stuff in their bodies quite a lot. Um, so you, all your, you know, your tummy ache children and your headache children. I don't want to go to school children. That's a common thing. We see lots of sleep difficulties. Um, out out of kindness, many children, you know, kindness on the adults' part. Many children are sort of told, going dying is just like going to sleep. And then we see lots of children who are really worried <laughs> about going to sleep. Um, so that can be a cause of sleep difficulties, as well as that thing that I'm sure as adults we all commonly have, you know, if you've had a terrible day or a terrible time about something, lying down and going to sleep, everything plops into your head, you know, and you can't sleep. Some children have nightmares, um, for example. Uh, so all of those things can uh, crop up. Often children feel different to other children, maybe. Not, you know, not all children. Again, as we were saying, it's very individual, but that's another common thing, feeling isolated. I see lots of children who say, oh, you know, no one else has had a mum or a dad who's died or a brother or sister or whoever it is. Um, and I can think, well, do you know, I know about five other people in your school right now. <laughs> um, however, but they don't, they're not to know that, are they? So feeling very isolated is something. Um, I think a real important thing to take into consideration is the age of the children. 
as well. So for example, in primary school, children under the age of five, generally speaking, and you know, we all know that kids don't slot neatly into their developmental stages for us, but generally speaking, children under five, for example, and a bit older, so your little ones, your reception class, nurseries, if it's attached, whatever, um, <clears throat> they don't understand the concept of death as permanent, for example, which a lot of people don't know. Um, so they see it as a temporary separation. So even if, for example, let's say mum had a terminal illness and that was explained very well all along the way and everybody knew and the child repeats the story back and their mum died, perhaps the child went to the funeral, so, you know. So in our heads as adults we might think, well, they know that, they tell the story of that person that has died sort of thing, but they're just conceptually, they can't, you know, cognitively, they're not able to grasp that. So they might say something like, Yes, but now it's my birthday next week, so mummy will be back, won't she? And that can be really hard for people to deal with because it's just about repeating and building and building and building the stories for those children. So that's quite common amongst that age group. Kind of an 8, 9, 10, 11 kind of age group um, ha have kind of some common features within that in terms of that age group children can feel quite different to other children. They can be kind of a little bit spookily, morbidly interested in death. You know, I sometimes go in schools and teachers say, oh, God, they're really, like, you know, really, really fascinating with death. What's going on? Are they, you know, don't worry, they're not all turning into mini psychopaths. It's really, it was really normal to have that kind of curiosity about death. Like, kids ask questions, don't they, that we don't want to think of. You know, someone's leg gets chopped off in a car accident. How long till all the blood comes out and they die? You know, all of those difficult questions um, that children can ask. So that's, that's common amongst that age group. That's where we might start doing some group work and things like that. Uh, and what have you. Um, and then as children get older, you might see a more adult kind of um, response to grief. You know, like your ultimate duvet day or your crazy OCD cleaning day. So for children, it might be, you know, kids who don't get out from under their duvet for two weeks or the other extreme end, you know, children who are, you know, absolutely going crazy trying to get their GCSEs done and complete this, that and the other, you know, and you look at them and you think, goodness me, you're going to keel over shortly. Um, so perhaps something you might see more in adults or, you know, we might recognise in ourselves a little bit more in that way. Yeah, well, one of the things I, I've heard said often when it's particularly young children dealing with mm. bereavement, it's interesting, often the adults will say, I'm amazed how resilient they were. So, you know, yeah. I've had experience of school leadership where parents have said that, said, you know, I can't believe how resilient the children yeah. are being. They, they almost, they're not as affected by it as I thought they would be. Yeah. I wonder if there's sometimes a danger there um, that we're underestimating actually what's going on, you know, under the surface. Yeah. Is that true, you know, particularly for younger children who will appear to be quite accepting of it, you know, will, will move on and mm. what have yeah. you, but under the surface, and perhaps that only comes through years later, as you've said. Is, is there yeah. an element that we're underestimating the impact sometimes? I think sometimes we can underestimate it, but I think there's another thing going on as well, um, which if, like, as you say, without training, you might may not be aware of, and that's some, something... Um, that relates to a bereavement theory, actually, called the dual process model. Um, so back back in the olden days, as it were, people would think that bereavement perhaps followed a nice, neat line. So, you know, you're bereaved and you're sad, then you're happier, then you're thingy, and then you're a bit angry and you pop out the other end. So perhaps people may have that view um, because they're expecting to see children sad, first of all, and gradually get better and better and better and better which in some respects is true, you know, in some respects that is true. However, what's more normal, and it's a more normal and common impact of being bereaved and grief, is to um, bounce from one set of kind of one state to another. 
So, for example, um, when I present this, it might be good to imagine this. I, I draw two big eggs in a way on the, on a board, and they're not. It's not a good egg and a bad egg. They're just two good eggs. And in one egg, there are all things um, which are kind of restoration sort of style activities. So it might be like doing new things. Uh, changing things in the family so for example older siblings might have to make the lunch boxes now or the dry person who drove might have died so they all have to walk to school things like that and on the other side there might be things in terms of looking back maybe doing some grief work um you know uh, just sort of saying no i'm not doing anything today can wait i can't do it i'm just under my duvet that sort of thing and and what's very natural is for children to oscillate from one state to the other so say for example if you're a pastoral worker or, or a, any form of you know, person in school checking in with the children. Now you could be ahead, or you know, thinking, "Oh, I'll check in and see how the kids are." And you may see them on one day, and you know, pastoral workers may have a session with that child on one day, and they'll, you know, they'll be all sort of chirpy and happy, and everyone thinks, "Goodness me!" You know, that's 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 good sort of thing. On that day, they'll perhaps be in that sort of restoration sort of state where things are more okay. But it's very natural. It doesn't mean necessarily they are okay. Like you say, there is other things still going on under the surface of the world. Because next week, if that worker was to see the child again, for example, they may be feeling really low, <coughs> low about something, you know, really distressed and unable to shift on in that way. And that's normal to bounce from kind of more forward-moving to more sort of sadness and stillness, as it were. <coughs> and conversely, it can work the other way around. Sometimes people say, oh, I saw the kid you know, last week and they were so down and everything. Do you know, today they came dashing down the corridor and said, you know, sorry, miss, I'm going to basketball instead today. You know, that, that's not because such a fantastic job has been done last week that we're done and dusted here. Um, and you spoke earlier <laughs> about, you know, the need for school leaders and teachers not to be fearful about saying the wrong thing. You know, mm. have the conversation, mm. you know, trust yourself to yeah. have that conversation. Are there, however, any pitfalls, any, you know, things you'd say to, to people in school, look, try to avoid doing this because generally yeah. speaking it's not helpful yeah i think there are a few to be honest and and again those those change uh with the ages of the children so for example um a pitfall can be um look for a big the biggest pitfall is avoiding it <laughs> so avoid avoiding it and then you're halfway there you know confront it and you're getting on you're getting on quite well but in terms of language this is a big thing that crops up so for example um we talked about how things are kind of ingrained in some of the stuff that we say. Um, it's really important as children go through their bereavement, say, for example, if you start with a younger child, to really set in place the language you use around bereavement in the same way as you might do in teaching them other things in school. The little children, for example, are really literal, aren't they? So if, if you say, um, oh, we lost grandma, well, let's pop and find her then, you know? Um, so it's helping children to build their story in that way. Sometimes we meet children who say, do you know what, I don't know when anyone actually mentioned that that person was dead, you know, that grandma was dead. Every everyone said we lost her. And I just wondered why everyone stopped looking for her, because isn't that mean, you know, where she could be out there somewhere. You know, children have that way of thinking. We're trying to be kind as adults, but it can be confusing. Um, so be being kind of clear with, with children, I think, and not... and not trying to avoid language that we think is uncomfortable when actual fact is building a real picture of the children. The person has died. You know, we're, we're really sad. Grandma has died, you know. 
things like that. And we've spoken a lot about kind of at the individual level so mm. far. I think individual teachers, mm. individual school leaders, um, having conversations, working with those children. How about at the kind of whole school level? Mm. Are there policies, procedures, approaches yeah. um, that schools can put in place that are likely to help when this situation arises? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's considered good practice, really, to have a bereavement policy within school. Um, and if there aren't bereavement policies in school, we can help with that. You know, you can contact us at Winston's Wish. We've helped schools with that before in terms of getting those things kind of up and running. Um, and you might want to consider some things like, uh, like the different types of death that could affect the school and, and be prepared about what you may want to do so for example um, if it's a death within the school community like an expected death perhaps a member of staff even um, uh, you know a sudden death within the school community I've been in to schools where you know they've been really shaken by sudden deaths um, you know a child falling off a horse at a weekend and, and then school starts again on Monday or people being involved in you know train accidents or you know car accidents stuff like that um, and it can be a real big shock. Um, so that sort of a death. And then uh, and that, that's perhaps more traumatic to the whole school community, for example, when that's thrown in. So being prepared for that. Um, and that would involve looking into and researching some of the uh, things you can have in place. It can be really useful to have some pre-prepared letters <laughs> because um, the funny thing about death, and it, even in terms of this sort of policy level and wider school level, is that... It's there all the time, isn't it? You know, everyone's very happy when someone's born. And death is just there all the time. But nobody really expects it. It always seems to catch everybody, um, catch people out. You know, that's a real often thing. I was, it's funny, it reminds me, I was at a school not too long ago in the north of England who had actually experienced three deaths in a half term. Mm-hmm. Some were parents. It wasn't children in the school, but parents yeah. of children in the school. And one of the things they said to me, which I thought was really interesting, they said, actually, we think it might be useful to have a checklist now because some of the they forgot the small things like um removing the parent from their text message communication system now that inadvertently could cause great upset you know to that family um is that sensible advice but almost to have a a check i know perhaps it feels like we're depersonalizing it a bit but having that i don't want to think about these Mm. things that it's the chance of this is going to happen and just having a quick aid memoir is that something you'd advise absolutely anything like that i mean it's really really good to think ahead and that's something that kind of it almost feels ingrained in people to not want to think about death, to not want to confront it. You know, we lots of people have death anxiety, and that. Also, but to have yes, a, a, a practical checklist to have thought through what might happen. I was in a school where a child was killed, and the next day they were sitting in their GCSEs, and he had very many friends in the class and in his year group. But you know how they set out the exam tables in a certain order in terms of alphabet, I don't know, or whatever. There was nobody had remembered to, uh, you know, move his table, um, and so there it was, the empty seat, as the others the next day were trying to take their GCSEs, and it, that's really difficult. It's nobody's fault, as it were. It, the, people didn't know quite what to do, um, but and in, in that in that way, it would be better to gather people gather people together and say, "Gosh, this has happened. We're really unsure about whether we take this seat." You know, be a little bit of honesty as well. We're, we don't know what to do with this seat, you know, or or at the beginning of it, say, look, you know, everyone probably knows what's happened to so and so. You know, this is how it is. So yeah, so being prepared, like you say, getting the the letters or the text messages, um, 
you know, the parent males turned off in that way or, or redistributed. That's the other thing. Because, you know, say, for example, if one one parent had signed up for the parent male on a very practical level and they're the person who died, the other parent perhaps is bereaved and is now had care of the children. A bit stereotypical, but use it as an example. And they're not getting the messages and the kids are going to school without their, you know, fancy dress or without their Christmas jumper on because they've not received the text message. Those are the things that really impact on children. And from a leadership perspective, you made me think of something there, which, you know, actually it must be quite tough for leaders in this situation because everybody has their own views about how you should respond to a bereavement, what's right for them. And in a large school community, you've got a huge variety of views, even within the staff themselves. So from a leadership perspective, you may make certain decisions, Mm -hmm. always be in the right interest, but will upset a part of the community because I think well that's not how I would like to deal with that that must be a real challenge for school leaders I would imagine absolutely I think it is and it would be really nice to see um, you know the issue of death and death policies and such like uh, being raised up as part of sort of the well-being toolkits and stuff like that as well to help school leaders in that situation I find when I go into schools and there have been you know sudden deaths like I was just talking about for example or um, multiple deaths and and leaders are trying to hold on to their staff team um, and trying to put things in place and manage all of these things <coughs> under a considerable amount of stress and stra- daily stress and strain themselves as well it's very difficult uh, I was in a school not so long ago where um, in their year three three mums had died and one of the mums was a TA in that class as well and the year three team were exhausted with it and the head was very much trying to deal with the team and absorb that you know it was such a dense little bit of thing that it was it was with them every day when one or the other of the children were feeling feeling it and the adults feeling it every day and she just you know she saw me and she just cried I went in and gave them the, the training that we do and she just cried, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, I, I said, no, no, that's okay. It's important those leaders having support themselves, yeah. isn't it, because they're dealing with the a- emotional baggage. Absolutely, yeah. and it's confusing death, you know, pe- people worry about uh, doing the right or wrong thing, or, you know, um, you know, we need to be kind to each other amongst that, because it is, it is hard, and there's a lot of, you know, secondary trauma that gets passed up and around <laughs> and shared about through the chain, you know, not... There's no uh, death that's not traumatic, but, you know, we're dealing regularly with suicides and murder and, you know, manslaughter and horrific accidents and and horrific just expected deaths that just have a horrific impact on the family. And is it hard to get the balance right between, as a school, needing to spend some time thinking about and talking about the death uh, and, and stopping what yeah. you'd normally do to kind of to allow people that time mm. but also the challenge then of what point do we want a better phrase sort of move on it's not That's quite it. the right phrase yeah. but actually we've got to carry on with yeah. school and life and and getting that balance right it must be tricky so. i think so and i think there are some really helpful ways that that can be achieved and i think you're right because it is a you know sometimes people will describe uh this sort of wonder when somebody's died if you have somebody close to you dying you think wait a minute how why is the rest of the world still carrying <laughs> carrying on because there is that feeling and that plays out in the school community as well where a death will occur and like you say everything perhaps stops for a while and things like that are addressed one of the biggest um fears that people generally have the children we see and again can play out in the wider school community people have is about forgetting the person who's died and that's why we do so much memory work um, in our work at Winston's Wish and, and just generally, I think. Um, 
So it could be really useful for in school, in order to be able to move on, because school life does carry on, to make sure there are opportunities for that. So, for example, I've been in a school where uh, we dug out a, um, a raised flower bed and got loads of bulbs, and the children were all able to write a message to the person who died under the bulb and plant, put it in the mud, you know, or three things they want to say, put the bulbs on top, cover it over and there we go year after year after year the bulbs are going to come back so that's one idea for example for the children who needed to do it it wasn't a blanket um, you know diktat that they all had to do it um, but for those children and adults that needed to have that opportunity that was there and and it felt good to have that done and I think without rushing things um, it's good to try and find time for that to happen earlier rather than later um, and schools are very busy places, aren't they? And there's sometimes there's not time for that. But for that sort of thing, or, you know, a tree perhaps to be planted, or um, a lovely picture display, I don't know, sometimes there's not so many photos, but perhaps depending on the age of the children, you know, that, you know, have some kind of media display that teenagers can graffiti or, you know, kids can draw, or, you know, make memory stones and glaze them and set them in some stone somewhere. Lots of little things like that. And it's not a magic wand that's going to make everything okay, but it allays, it marks that person's presence, or and lack of presence now in the school, um, but keeps them, keeps them there as well, keeps the thoughts about them. Uh, you know, differently if it's more individual children, there could be a place in school, um, you know, like a memory tree put on a, up on a wall, for example, a massive stencil memory tree that children are able to go and put memories or thoughts or feelings or you know an area where that's available um, and I think at the time for the, whether it's an individual or a wider school community having uh, a place that children can go people they know they can check in with at that time is really useful and then that enables the moving on because then you know earlier on we were talking a little bit about um how how you know you might have a good day bad day you know one day when everything feels fine it feels fine to move on and another day when you say if you've got a best friend you know who's done something you know you've planted your bulbs for example and the best friend has done that and they're really extra special they've had two bulbs you know because they were best best friends or whatever um you know it's a place for children to go back to let you know how they're feeling as well that best friend may then for some weeks feel okay for a little while but actually when something comes up, you know, they were always tied together in the three-legged race and it's a three-legged race or it's the birthday party and they can't invite their best friend anymore because they've died. You know, that's a place that you could say, oh, come on, let's go and see so-and-so's bulb. Let's go and just check there's no weeds and stuff there and have a little look and, you know, maybe we could stick an extra note underneath, you know. So, so yeah, so sorry yeah. to interrupt. I just, <laughs> so for people who are listening who are, yeah. who are potentially maybe going through this experience right mm, now yeah. or who have kind of heard what you've had to say about being proactive and thinking actually I do need to go and, and sort mm. out a policy and start talking about this now yeah. um, if they would like to get in touch with Winston's Wish yeah. how do they what's the best way for they them can, to do that they can get in touch on our helpline our helpline number is 08088020021 and they can google Winston's Wish is the easiest way um, and, and click on our website and there's all of our contact details on there and there's actually information on there and ideas about things that you might want to consider including in your policy to get you started off and so we come to the end of this episode thank you so much for listening what we'd really like to do in future is to get to grips with more of your stories more of the stories from members in our podcasts 
what that means is interesting stories, really compelling stories from your school and your colleagues. The idea is to really get under the skin of what it is you're doing at school. Drop us a line to this email address to tell us more. Policy at neht.org.uk. That's policy at neht.org.uk. I really urge you to flag up what it is that you're extremely proud of that was a great success or a wonderful story in your school. And then we can celebrate the work that your team is doing. As always, it's really straightforward to make sure you get all the future podcasts from NEHT and NEHT Edge. All you need to do is subscribe on iTunes. And it's also possible to leave us a review. It'd be really good to get your take on what we produce. NEHT is a professional association and union for school leaders. NEHT Edge is the part of our association aimed specifically at aspirational middle leaders. To discover more about the benefits of being a member of either NEHT Edge or NEHT, go online to nehtedge.org.uk forward slash join or www.neht.org.uk forward slash join. There's also our social media accounts. On Twitter, we can be found in the following places at NEHT Edge and at NEHT News. For regular and useful content on the teaching profession, it has to be the School Leadership Podcast. The school Leadership Podcast. The school Leadership Podcast. The school Leadership Podcast.